I kind of came to the uncomfortable realization that when I look at the big problems facing humanity, and, and the biggest one I think is climate change and environmental destruction, that I wasn't really reducing the likelihood that that, that that would happen. I was actually probably accelerating humanity toward that. And I just had to say, well, you know what? I, I think it's time for me to, to make a change. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome, friends, to the 60th episode of the Business for Good podcast. If you listen to the show often, you already know that the planet just is not getting any bigger. But humanity's footprint on the planet is getting bigger. And one of the primary ways that we leave that footprint is through our food print, principally in the amount of meat that we eat. It just takes a lot of land, a lot of water, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, a lot of animal welfare problems to produce so much meat for all of us humans. Seems pretty simple then, right? Why don't we humans, upon realizing just how many problems we're causing by eating so much meat, decide to enjoy a more plant-based diet? Well, awareness of the concerns about factory farming of animals has never been higher. And at the same time, meat consumption has also never been higher. Today, we eat more meat and raise more animals for food than we ever have in human history before. Humans, it seems, just really want to eat meat. But what if we could grow real meat without having to raise and slaughter animals. No, we're not talking here about alternatives to meat. We're talking not about meat substitutes. We're talking instead about real meat, simply grown from animal cells rather than from animal slaughter. When I wrote the book about this topic called Clean Meat, the number of companies in existence to commercialize this kind of meat could really be counted on one or two hands. Sadly, New Age meats didn't yet exist when I turned in the manuscript, otherwise I would have happily written about them. But New Age Meats was one of the first such companies to be founded, having gotten its start over three years ago. In this space, that practically qualifies the startup as part of the old school. And on this episode, we've got their co-founder and CEO, Brian Spears. In mid-2018, the company debuted its first sausage made with cells from a living pig who Brian's team personally biopsied. We talk in this episode about that experience and what they've been up to since. Back then, it cost them $216 to make that historic first sausage, whereas today, that number, of course, has been slashed. In 2021, the company is focused like a laser on figuring out how to best marry animal proteins and plant proteins together to create meat that doesn't just mimic conventional animal meat, but is actually superior to it in numerous ways. Already, New Age Meats has brought in $7 million in venture capital funding, and the company is about to open its Series A round to raise millions more. In this episode, we talk about why Brian feels so passionately about hybridizing meat with plant protein, as opposed to just using animal cells alone. We hear about his journey from leaving another startup he founded and ran for 12 years to enter the alternative protein space instead. We also discuss why Brian uses the term cultivated meat to describe his products and when we can expect to see more new age meats products in more intestines, whether out on the market or just by taste testers like they did in 2018. And yes, we even talk about Brian's passion outside of the clean room, on the ballroom dance floor. It's an inspirational story about a serial entrepreneur who decided to use his career not just to make money, but also to solve a serious problem facing humanity while making that money. I now bring you New Age Meat CEO, Brian Spears. Brian, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate you having me. 
I am really psyched to be here So with you. So let me uh, just start us out by asking you the question I'm sure is on everyone's mind. How did it come to pass that somebody with a degree in ballroom dance is running, <laughs> is running a meat company? Uh, that's a good question. I prepared for a lot of questions. I didn't prepare for this one. So this is fine. I'll, 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 I'll answer on the fly. Are, are you now? You do have a degree in ballroom dance, right? So I have a minor in ballroom dance. I don't want to minor. oversell myself. Okay. Yeah. yeah so okay. I'm a major in chemical engineering and a minor in ballroom dance. Nice. But as I'd like to point out, there are so many overlapping classes that it really is not much of a feat, honestly. So. <laughs> Or, or two feet. Um, oh, that's pretty good. Nice, man. So, that's delightful. Are, are, you, uh, are you still ballroom dancing? I mean, I know during the pandemic you are unlikely to be, but is it still an interest of yours? It certainly is. I mean, it, social dancing is really, so there are, I mean, we, we could make a whole podcast on ballroom dance, but so there, there's more like international style, like a competitive style where you'll go and uh, perform and compete and such in a very uh, well standardized way. And so there's certain figures that you'll be judged on and that type of thing. And then there's a social dance element where essentially you'll just go to a dance and you'll ask someone to dance and then you'll just dance together in any number of styles of dance, right? So maybe you're going to do the cha-cha or the rumba, or maybe you'll do a waltz or a, a tango or foxtrot. So then it's just really a lead and follow type of thing, much like people do in salsa or swing. Uh, so it's, it's essentially just that type of lead and follow, but you're doing it with other types of dance. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'll still do... Some, that sometimes it really, you find that uh, it attracts an older demographic in most cases. So it, it depends on who I'm uh, hanging out with. But uh, I'll, I'll still kind of go and do dance, uh, you know, a salsa dance or a swing dance, like I said, because those tend to be more people my age, frankly. Mm. Uh, and But I still really enjoy dancing for sure. But during the pandemic, it's much more difficult. I do much more dancing alone in my living room, which, which <laughs> I also recommend. Don't need, nice. don't need a minor for that. Very, very nice. Well, uh, a couple of things. One, a colleague of mine is into ballroom dancing big time. And so uh -huh. I'll, have to, I'll have to introduce you to him should you, in case you okay. don't know him, but he, he's, he's really into it. But second... I mean, who's going to lead? Yeah, okay. Oh, that, that's fine. We'll figure it out. I'll, I'll leave that to you guys. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, but I didn't know you were into swing dancing because, uh, you know, uh, my wife, Tony actually got me into it. And before the oh, pandemic, wow. we were going out like twice a week. Um, and she used to be like super into it. She was like an instructor and oh, wow. like traveled all over the world doing, or at least all over the country rather doing uh, various swing dancing competitions and all these events. And then she got me into it more casually. And I, I mean, we're going out before the pandemic twice a week, but now we do, we do swing dance together, uh, at home during the pandemic, which yeah. is fun. And our dog, uh, really, really gets into it. And he really, <laughs> he tries to dance with us. So, um, but that's cool. So do you go out swing dancing now? Uh, well, I mean, I, pre pandemic. Uh, so yeah. I, it was, I hadn't done it here. So I moved to the Bay area. I want to say three years ago to start this company. And so it, it didn't allow certainly a whole lot of time in the beginning to, to dance. So I, I don't think I've been out once since I've mm -hmm. been, I've been salsa dancing a few times, but not swing dancing in the barrier. But I, when I lived in Austin and then Denver, I did uh, a fair amount in both of those places. All right. Well, we'll, we'll have to compare notes sometime. I'm, I'm sure yeah. you are, I'm sure that you are superior to me in, in, the, in your uh, dance acumen, uh, given that you have a minor in it. But uh, someday we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have to compare some notes here. But we have many common interests aside from swing dancing. And that's what we are really here to talk about. Um, right. although, although I do think that dance can help make the world a better place too. But for the purposes Agreed. of our conversation here, um, you know, New Age Meets is not your first rodeo, so to speak, that you were actually the co-founder and CEO of a company prior to your life. Uh -huh. 
in the meat industry trying to grow meat without animals. So just tell us what was Six Clear and what happened with it? Like you ran it for many years, but what was it first of all? And, and what did you do with it? Sure, sure. So my, my uh, educational background, so I just have a bachelor's in chemical engineering. And then after I graduated, I went to work for a company called National Instruments out of Austin, Texas. And they do kind of broadly, basically they, they make the hardware and software that feeds all kind of frontier technology industry. So they will, they will help research labs, uh, production and like early stage production environments. So moving from research to development and then using those same types of tools to move into uh, production, like manufacturing. So I worked for them for four years. And then after a while, I kind of determined that I could do this myself and, and run, run my own company. So myself and another guy co-founded SixClear. And it essentially worked with a few different types of customers. So we worked with, for instance, some uh, deep research customers. So we worked, uh, so for instance, some uh, NASA and some U.S. and Canadian national labs and some universities uh, were some of our customers. What did you do for them? Like, what did the company actually do? Sure, yeah. So we did a few things. So we would, the first thing that we did was we taught them how to set up their research in order to essentially integrate the hardware and software. So where does the data come from? Where, where, where are your sensors? Where, and then how do you gather those, that data together? How do you store it together? Then how do you make data-based decision? What type of logic are you applying to it in order to determine whether your, your test passes or fails? And how do you design your experiments? How do you think about, um, how do you think about what your goals are experimentally? And then how does that actually play into experimental design uh, and and then of course the implementation of all of that. So that was the that was the whole industry. That, that was the the twelve years of of being in that industry. Mm. And what happened at the end of twelve years? I think that increasingly, as the time wore on on uh, during that last company, started to ask just more questions on uh, what what what's the point of this company, right? What 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 is it here to do? And those reflecting back to kind of like larger questions that I have, which is what is my point here? What's, what's, what's the point of my life? What, what am I trying to do here? When, I, when it's all said and done and I'm dead, I have a tombstone. What does it say on the tombstone? Does it say that I help people set up the research labs and I uh, allowed them to do the research faster and make more products? That sounds, you know, that's, that's interesting. It was a very interesting industry, but I didn't feel like I was actually doing anything. I kept asking, what's the whole point of it? What's the point? What, what's, what's this thing, not just what my company's doing, but what's the whole industry doing? What am I enabling? Essentially, I'm, I'm putting gas in the car of, of you know, different cars of all these different cars which are going to their own destination. So I'm helping them get to where they want to go faster. But, but I'm like, where are they going? Do I want them to go where they're going faster? So there were certainly some industries that I was really proud to work with. Like I said, work with NASA and some, and a lot of renewable energy companies. Um, but then there were some industries, which frankly, I wasn't as thrilled working at, working with. And I kind of came to the uncomfortable realization that when I look at the big problems facing humanity, and, and the biggest one I think is climate change and environmental destruction, that I wasn't really reducing the likelihood that that, that, that would happen. I was actually probably accelerating humanity toward that. And I just had to say, well, you know what? I, I think it's time for me to, to make a change. Well, that's certainly very revelatory. And it, you know, it reminds me a little bit, I don't know if you have um, ever heard of or read the short story by Tolstoy called The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Have you heard of it? I have not, no. 
Uh, it's a really great short story that I recommend. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. But basically, you know, um, Ivan Ilyich is leading this life where he uh, basically is not really contributing a lot to the world and he ends up getting sick. And uh, to make a, a short story even shorter, mm. he uh, is on his what may be his deathbed and he's, you know, thinking how he's going to reform his life if he gets better uh, so that he'll actually lead a more purpose-driven life. And not to ruin the ending for you, but he dies. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, that, that's the end of it there. Um, and, you know, you know, many of us don't want to end up like Ivan Ilyich. You know, we want to have a life of, of meaning and of purpose where we actually yeah. contribute something meaningful well, to I don't the wanna, world. I don't want to ruin the ending for all of us, but we're all going to die. Yeah, that is the ending for all of us. Uh, I, I presume that even in spite of all the longe- longevity efforts being made by uh, many of the uh, venture capitalists in the world, that probably immortality is not going to be within our reach uh, anytime soon, at least. So um, we are going to die. And so you decided, though, that before you died, you wanted to actually try to do something for climate change, I presume, since you're saying that was the, the motivating factor for you. Is that what led you to think, I want to start a company growing meat without animals. Was it climate? Was it animal welfare? Like what was the big reason for you that you wanted to shift from your own company that you had founded and run for more than a decade to an entirely new industry for you? Yeah, the I I definitely thought that renewable energy was where I was going to end up. In fact, I had done renewable energy research as an undergrad. I worked in like biomass combustion, also environmental chemistry. And so I, I was I always really cared about it quite a bit. And I work with a lot of companies in that space. And so I was living in Austin, Texas previously. And then I moved to uh, Denver, Colorado to be near the National Renewable Energy Lab there in Golden, Colorado, with the idea being that that would be you know the new industry that I would get into. And so I spent a lot of time in that whole ecosystem uh, with startups and with some of the engineers and, and young businesses. And it really struck me that the, that the, the ecosystem was much more mature. There were the people that are working with, they were kind of eking out these single digit gains in uh, solar conversion efficiency or battery storage efficiency. And, and so it, the, the industry was, mo- much of the value that could be derived was actually kind of like in the business implementation of, you know, how, how do you have better, better uh, rental structures for rooftop solar, for instance, instead of having a, a purchaser pay for all the costs up front, how do you get this onto somebody's roof in a much more efficient way? And, and that was actually driving more of the change. So while I thought that was interesting in his own right, uh, you know, I'm an engineer, I've always been interested in science and technology since I was young. And uh, I thought, well, well what's, what is really the field that there's a ton of white space uh, that really still is underserved? And my, my experience in, in moving a bunch of different industries forward I was kind of looking back and say, well, what industries are kind of the dinosaurs? There are a lot of dinosaurs in the industries. And there are any number of reasons that an industry would be slower, like it would be a dinosaur and, and slow to change, as opposed to some of the more fast-moving industries. And food has always been a dinosaur. You and know, there are a lot I, of reasons for that. You know, I, I just got to stop you for one second, because <laughs> I think it's so funny that, you know, we use this term dinosaur for like uh-huh. you know, those who like won't change. But the reason the dinosaurs aren't here isn't because they refuse to change. It's just because they didn't have a space program, basically, right? Like, you know, it's so funny how we use the term dinosaur to Uh mean like someone whose like head is stuck in the sand and that they're, uh, you know, they're just rendered obsolete. But in reality, you know, the dinosaurs dominated for such a long time. Uh, It's a pretty amazing stretch that they had uh, far longer than than mammals have been around. So anyway, I I, I just have to put in my own little defense of them in, uh, you know, uh, in absentia for them that they were actually, you know, 
they did pretty well. But yes, I hear what you're saying that, you yes. know, there are many industries that are, are, are stuck in the sand for sure. For sure. Yes. Um, so the, the food industry and, and you being in the food industry, you, you certainly recognize this, that there are, it's, it's a lore, it's a commodity based, it's a commodity industry for the most part. Uh, it's very low margins. Uh, it's tied to agriculture on the, early in the supply chain, which has very long cycles. You're out, you're literally growing crops. So it's, it's a slower industry in general. And so when I looked at the time, this was, this would have been, you know, 2016, 2017, uh, some of the earlier players in alternate proteins like beyond and impossible were really shining. And it was very clear that, I mean, the, the UNFAO doing their, uh, coming out with the reports showing that 14.5% of greenhouse gas emissions being tied to factory farming, or I'll say, I'll say actually animal agriculture more broadly, um, that showed, and, and there was so little technology being applied to the problem. Uh, whereas, again, coming from renewable energy, there's so much technology being applied to the problem. It was almost mm-hmm. over-technologized. Technologized. Uh, I'll, I'll make that a verb. So in, on, the, on the alternative protein side, the more I researched it, the more I was just, in my mind, it was just obvious that this industry is just ripe for moving much more quickly. And so that, um, that, that was the start of it. So that was like 2017. So, so how did you know about this? So, I mean, in 2017, there was nearly nothing. So there was New Harvest, you know, the Good Food Institute had just been founded. Memphis mm-hmm. Meats had been founded like a year earlier. So uh, had, you, did you, had you heard of the burger that was debuted back in 2013? Like, how, how did you even know that there was this very embryonic industry of cultivated meat? It's a fun story. I, so I certainly during 2015, 2016 had or even, even before that, obviously had heard of, you know, lab grown meat at the time, uh, or clean meat or in vitro meat or whatever people want to call it. And, uh, I even recall hearing, uh, Uma Valetti on Sam Harris's podcast in 2016, thinking like, oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, and becoming very interested in it at that time. And then in early 2017, learning about, uh, the Good Food Institute and they were, uh, I, I saw a job ad actually just, I, I was on Quartz, uh, like the website, and I can't even remember why I saw it, but I saw it. And I'm like, what is this? Uh, what is this Good Food Institute? And just started looking more into what they were championing. And I just fell down a rabbit hole. I, I started reading more and more and more. And I was, I was, I was, <laughs> it was one of those things I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm. And I started telling my friends about it, and they they just hadn't heard anything about it. I'm like, have you heard about this thing? It's there. It's it's a market based solution to creating meat. And if you create meat in this essentially what people want is they want the experience of eating meat. They don't really want meat. People, they don't want to slaughter, rather, they don't want to slaughter an animal. People love meat. They hate the way it's made. Right. But if people, if you could make meat a better way, that's what they want. Yeah. And I think that, uh, that's one reason why I like the tagline that new age meats has so much meat without slaughter, because yes. what you're saying seems very true to me that people eat meat, not because animals were slaughtered for it, but really in spite of that fact. And that Correct. M- many people, maybe not all, but many people, I think would be quite happy to enjoy uh, meat if it were the same, if not even better uh, without having to put animals through all of the problems that put them through. So um, that seems like pretty compelling to me. But, you know, let me ask you then, you know, now, you know, you fast forward, your company has existed for about three and a half years. There's now, you know, when you started New Age Meats, I mean, you could probably have counted the number of, of clean meat companies on two hands uh, that mm-hmm. existed back then. And now, uh, you know, you would probably 
need, um, I don't know, a lot of hands. I think there's like over 80 mm-hmm. companies in the space yep. now. Um, so you're, you're more of a mathlete than I am, but you know, that's a lot of hands. Right. Um, so what makes you any different than them? Uh, like how, how is New Age Meets different from the other companies in the space, aside from having been earlier to the game than most of them? That's a great question. So the, the, I think the biggest differentiator we, we look at is we, we look very deeply at the, and I, I kind of alluded to it just previously is, and I tell the team, I tell the team, this is, is we don't, we're not a cultivated meat company. We're not a plant-based meat company. We're, we're, we, what we make is the experience of eating meat. So what is the experience of eating meat? What happens when you see meat, when you smell meat, when you're chewing on it, when you swallow it, when you're digesting it? What is that experience to the human body? And then what is the experience to the identity? What does it mean to be a meat eater? What does it mean to enjoy meat dishes with your family or cultural occasions? How does that fit into your life? What we're really delivering is that experience, the experience to the body and to the experience to the identity. So we make, for instance, cells in our case, pork cells, we'll make these pork cells because they deliver the experience. And I think that the big difference that I see in with, with us and other companies, and I'm not in those companies, and, and I'm not even an investor diligence in those companies, so I'm not going to pretend to know exactly what they're doing, but perhaps from the public narrative, at least what I can extrapolate would be that there's kind of a, a broad narrative that the, the experience of meat comes from the cells. You, you kind of hear this, this uh, narrative that you can have, that we make, or the cultivated meat companies or cell-based meat companies, whatever you want to call them, that they make meat down to the cellular level. And you don't have to sacrifice at all because you'll just, you're just going to eat this cell-based meat, which is exactly the same as the conventional slaughtered meat that you've been eating. You don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to change. And that's very, that's very compelling. People love that. I think the issue there is a cell-by-cell replacement or a mass-by-mass replacement of the product is incredibly inefficient. And it doesn't even get to what the, what the actual experience is. You're making the, some, the implicit assumption there is that you need to make a mass-by-mass replacement, or in this case, a cell-by-cell replacement, in order to deliver the meat experience. And you, you just have to go look at the existing alternatives in the market, like Impossible and Beyond and some of the really good, the other good plant-based meat options out there. And you can see that they, year over year, they're rising by double digits. People are flocking to them because they have these guilty meat eaters, as I said before, these guilty meat eaters who love meat but hate the way it's made. And they're more than happy to give these other products the benefit of the doubt. And for in large part, they like them. And so it's not that necessarily that they, they think that they're, uh, they, they don't want this. They're, they're not out there hankering for the cells. They're out there hankering for the experience. Now, in the case of the Impossible and Beyonds and, and a lot of these other products, they're really good at some things and they're not so good at some other things. And so if you slap down one of these products right beside a beef burger and blindfold yourself, nobody's fooled to saying they're, they're, they taste exactly the same. Uh, I mean, a beef patty from Impossible Beyond or whatever versus a, a beef patty from a slaughtered animal, they do not taste exactly the same. People aren't, people aren't fooled because there are certain things that the plant toolkit doesn't have in order to replicate that experience. But there's some things that the plant toolkit provides which are really good at replicating that experience. So what I hear perhaps too often from other cultivated companies or, or cell-based companies or kind of the, the broad narrative is that the, they're using the, the animal cells in order to replicate the entire experience of, of eating meat. And essentially, why would you use these expensive and difficult to scale cells to solve a problem that's already being solved really well by the plant-based side? What you really should be doing is kind of using the best of both worlds. 
So what are the, what are the things that the plant-based toolkit cannot deliver? What, are, what things are uniquely left to the cells? So if you understand what those things are, then you can create a better functioning product. Well, to do that, you actually need to study the human experience of eating meat to understand what each of those sides of the equation offer. I, I'm saying sides of the equation as in the, the plant-based side and the, the cell side. And then it's a matter of not just blending them together, but actually integrating them in, into a way that highlights what the cells provide. Because again, they are, and anybody who studied this space for long enough recognizes that they're, they're expensive and difficult to scale. So the last thing you want to do is to overuse them to solve problems that you don't need to solve. Mm. So I'd say that would be our biggest differentiator. Got it. So studying that sensory experience and figuring out how to marry both animal and plant cells together to create a, a great experience. And that leads me then, Brian, to this other question that I've had, because in other interviews, I have heard you talk about how you don't want to just mimic conventional meat, that you want to create new culinary experiences mm -hmm. that are actually superior to the ones that we have. So Amen. What are the, you're saying amen to yourself because I'm just quoting Absolutely. you from these other interviews. Yes. So I'm glad you agree with your past <laughs> statements. Um, but what are you fantasizing about? Like, what are these novel experiences that you are contemplating creating for people? Is it just a burger that tastes better than any other burger you've ever had? Or is it something that is totally novel and that no human has ever experienced this before? So the, going back to the ex, studying the, I think that studying the experience of eating meat unlocks all of the above. In fact, in, you have to study it in order to understand how to make your product better to even mimic the current experience of eating meat mm -hmm. and to make a product which really replicates it extremely well, such that at the beginning, people will understand that it's meat, will identify it as meat and will replace the meat that they're eating with that product. And then you, you gain their trust that you can do it. And there's, there's an element of, yes, there's an identity, there, there's, a, there's a recognition of the identity and there's a replacement. And at that point, then you can very quickly lead the consumer to a better place mm. because you have this toolkit because you've been studying what the human experience is of eating meat. And if you understand what the human experience of eating meat is and then how certain factors within the cells or the plant-based side deliver that, well, then you can highlight those and you can, you can change those. You can overexpress them. You yeah. can well, essentially say like, hey, humans really like factor X and factor Y. They're not so crazy about factor Z. And so if I can go and create this product, which really highlights X and Y and gets rid of Z, I'll have a product that's way better than the animal. Mm. There, there, you you well, can't so, go back to the animal and change the animal flavor very much. You can, you can change the feed into it and you can change the, its housing, and, and, but you, you can't actually change the cell. But we can, can change, we change everything about it. We can go down to the cellular level and beyond. Yes. And so I agree with you that when you have control of at the molecular level that you're going to be able to create really interesting new experiences. And really what I wonder about is what those experiences might actually be. So instead of just thinking about factors X and Y, which are, are just unknown variables, like think about, uh, for example, like if you contemplate the time between when humanity had already domesticated cows, but before we learned how to curdle milk to make cheese, during that time, people were quite happy to be drinking milk, at least those cultures that were drinking it, but they had never even fantasized about Gouda or Brie or Swiss or any of the other types of cheese that people now are, are obsessed with. And those were culinary experiences that had never been 
enjoyed or even fantasized about by most humans that now many people claim they could never live without it. Uh, they just think like cheese is just too essential of a part of their diet. It's too pleasurable for them to ever consider living without it. So do you think that there are other similar types of no, uh, novel culinary categories that don't yet exist that will exist in the way that cheese now exists, but you know, a blink of an eye ago, historically speaking, it didn't, that cellular agriculture will enable? 100%. And I say this, so there are, so for instance, you can go look at some flavor wheels. Um, I, I want to say Givaudan, uh, it could be from a niche. So well, I, I had to go look it up. Yeah, These are big flavor companies that you have in yeah. the food industry that you're referring to. Precisely. Right. So, and there, there's the concept of this flavor wheel with this, these complementary flavors. And in, in certain ethnic cuisines, uh, you may find that there, there's kind of a natural pairing where over time recipes have iterated to kind of deliver these these complementary pairings. Not even maybe maybe not even just a pair of two, but then multiple types of taste sensations, which together on the human palate create a very pleasing sensation. And the the research has shown that there are actually quite a bit more of these that we don't that that has never been ethnically kind of iterated that you don't find anywhere. So if you may find that there are certain aspects of the the taste experience that if you, you can, you can kind of like look at the flavor wheel and say, well, it looks like, and I'll go back. I'm, I mean, um, I can actually pull it up and take a look at some examples if that's interesting, but I'll, I'll remain with the variables for now, uh, that for instance, X, Y, and Z do really well together. Well, you can, you can pull those out and you can go create a dish, which people haven't seen before. So for instance, I used to live in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest. They used to do this. They would have so, some, uh, some of the food trailers during South by Southwest to go and try some of these new novel experiences, which people hadn't, like, it sounds extremely weird, right? So uh, some candied type of meat uh, that will have some sort of sour citrus flavor to it. And on the surface, you think that's really weird, but you try it and it works. It's, it's some way of like, wow, I never thought that would be good, but I, I, I really like it. Hmm. And so there are any number of, of experiences that we humans can have that just, they're, they're, they're out there. Uh, and you, there's just, they just haven't kind of been iterated among like the ethnic or the chefs and the restaurants. They haven't yet come upon these, um, tastes, taste or flavor amalgamations that really give us this experience that we could have, yeah. but that, that whole space is so wide open. And here's, here's my suggestion for you. Um, so I know that you guys are working with pig cells, but mm -hmm. think about, you know, there's a category of people out there who want a turducken. Now, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't know what a turducken is, it's a, it's a chicken stuffed inside of a duck, stuffed inside of a turkey, and then you cook mm -hmm. them all and you eat the meat of three species of birds all at once. Now, I don't know why anybody would want to do this, but people like novel experiences, and so maybe maybe that's mm -hmm. it. But you know, it's it's pretty crude. You know, uh, you're just layering one type of meat on top of another. But what if you could grow chicken, duck, and turkey cells all together and interweave the protein so you have an actual turducken, not just something where it's, you know, one bird stuffed inside of another, stuffed inside of another, but you have a cultivated turducken that you can allow people who have never experienced that to get their own real turducken, cellularly speaking. What do you think? Uh, I think I think you're right. And I one I will take slight issue with one of the ways you said it, which is how could you, how could you marry together or, or interweave a turkey and a duck and a chicken cell? And going back to what I was saying earlier, it's, it's not necessarily that you'd even need a separate turkey and duck and chicken cell. You would simply have to know what the turkey, duck, and chicken cell delivers that delivers to you the experience of this is duck, this is chicken, 
And so if you can instead identify what that is, well, then you don't need to make the entire, for instance, you don't need to go make a, you don't need to go biopsy, for instance, a, or go and do an IPSC on some sort of chicken to go make a cell line and chicken to go then get a media formulation for the chicken cell line, which then goes into a certain bioreactor, which is optimized for that, for mm. that cell. And then you do that for the chicken, for, you do that for the duck and you do that for the turkey or whatever. Uh, that's a lot of redundant work. What you're instead doing is you're saying, okay, what, are, what is each of these cells delivering that, again, the human palate identifies as turkey, duck, or chicken, and essentially understand how a cell will make that. Yeah. And then you make that. That's much more efficient. Interesting. Okay. Well, I, I like where you're going with this. And um, please know that if you ever do a tasting of the New Age Meats Turducken, that I, I hope, <laughs> g- given that I am the progenitor of this idea, yeah, I really hope I'll be able to get, a, get an invite to this. So um, now that we're talking about your tastings, though, let me pivot here because um, you guys did a very cool tasting of some sausage. And you even talked about the pig from whom the original cells came from, this pig, Jesse. So mm-hmm. Tell me about Jesse the pig and what you did with Jesse's cells and uh, what happened. Sure, yeah. So that was in July of 2018. So that was shortly after we formally incorporated the company. And we went to IndieBio, which is a biotech accelerator in downtown San Francisco. And they gave us our first pre-seed funding. On Jesse Street, if I'm not mistaken, right? It is on Jesse Street. It's an amazing question. Was was the pig named after the street? It is, yes. Ah, yeah. okay, got it. My co-founder, she she took the liberty of doing so. Got uh, it. The factory, I'll say the factory, the farm pigs uh, weren't named. And so we, <laughs> okay. we gave uh, Jesse her name, yes. I, I wasn't sure if this was like a pig on a sanctuary or, or, or on a farm. So, uh, you know, anyway. So, okay. So Jesse is a farm pig who I, yes. I presume, uh, how, how did you get the farmer to consent to giving you some of Jesse's uh, cells? Um, payment. Yeah. We just, uh, we said, we, we, we said we're very upfront about what we were doing. Uh, and luckily the, there was a veterinarian on site. So the, the veterinarian worked, so it, it was, a, it was a small farm and they had, um, it, they tried to be as regenerative as they could. And so they, you, they had animals in various disciplines, uh, delivering certain value to the value chain that humans want. And so, she was the the veterinarian uh, was on site, and so she was able to uh, anesthetize the pig because the pig doesn't know it's saving humanity. And so then you can take a small biopsy of the the flesh oh, of the pig, well, and and saving fellow porcines as well in the process. The, the pig the pig is probably less interested in saving humanity than in, in right. saving fellow, fellow porcines. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a high minded pig in, in all regards, but I, I think you're probably correct that I was most interested in its. Uh, yeah. fellow species. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so then we were able to get that biopsy and essentially that point, then it's just a matter of cell work. So you're going to, you're going to kind of chop up that, that biopsy and then you separate out the stem cells and then you grow the stem cells and then you will separate them and then differentiate them into muscle or fat. That was the <laughs> first how big is this biopsy? Is it the size of like a sesame seed, the size of a, you know, a, a grain of rice? Like what, what is the size that you're taking here? Yeah, it was, uh, I would say slightly larger than a grain of rice. Yeah, it was, uh, we wanted to make sure we got, um, we wanted to get it from the, I guess this isn't actually, uh, we we got it from the belly. Uh, At the time we were very, we had a lot of questions like where on the pig should we get it? Uh, So we're like, well, we kind of want to make sausage that tastes more like a, like a bacon type of product. 
uh, which we came to learn later isn't really accurate. Like good sausage comes from the shoulder. Uh, but you know, we, were, <laughs> I don't have a background in meat, neither did she. So we just kind of said like, well, belly, pork belly, like that's probably what, that's where the good stuff comes from. So we're going to take it from the, from the belly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we took a, a small biopsy. Yeah. About a, a grain of rice, a little, maybe a little larger than a grain of rice from the belly. Okay. And so how long before you have this, you know, grain of rice sized biopsy, do you have a sausage? So that was about two months. So from mid July until mid September. And then we served about three kind of, you know, small, I think one of the reports said egg roll, egg roll size um, sausages, so small egg rolls. And they were actually 10% cultivated meat. And we used an equal portion of muscle and fat. Mm. And the rest of it was plant-based. What's the plant-based that you're using? Uh, so it was soy-based. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And wh- do you think, I mean, I, I presume I know the answer to this question, but just for the sake of anybody listening, so something is 90% plant-based and 10% cells, you think those 10% animal cells make such a difference that if it were 100% uh, plant-based, it would be categorically different in its sensory experience for the consumer. Is that right? Well, that's, uh, I, I guess I would defer to, so we, we invited, you know, media to, so business insider, for instance, we invited them. We didn't tell them what to say. We just said, would you like to try it and write about it? So they came and the quotes were, I couldn't tell the difference between this pork sausage and any other. And it tasted like meat because it's meat. Mm-hmm. And so the, which is kind of maybe even what I was, or goes back to what I was saying earlier, that it, even when we started the company or started working together in November of 2017, we, it took us just a few weeks to determine that any type of product that's, that's close to like a hundred percent cultivated meat just will not scale anytime in the future, anytime in the short term. That that's like, there's, there's no point in really trying to do that. What you really want to do is to understand again, what the, what the important part that the cells are providing and then what the important part of the plants are providing and then make a product which can scale and then taste delicious. It's better than anything in the market and the cost can actually compete. You do, you, we're not interested in making a low volume solution for luxury restaurants. That doesn't, that's not the reason I got into this business. It's not, it doesn't actually return, like none of our investors want that either. None of the, none of the team wants that. Uh, we, we're not trying to make meat for rich people. We're trying to make pork for the, for the people. So we are much more interested in, in making a product that can scale. The one thing that stands, the one there, there are several things that stand in the way, but the biggest being the regulatory. Yeah. So, for instance, in the United States, we actually can't sell it yet, uh, despite there being interest in purchasing it. So, we certainly do need to work together jointly with the USDA and the FDA in order to to bring it to market. Yeah. Okay. So let's just presume that they give you the green light and that you are legally allowed to sell it. How long before you actually could sell any meaningful quantity of it? Because I know in the past you've talked about just what a minuscule portion of the meat industry alternative meat is so far. Um, You know, it's far less than 1% of all the meat sold both in America and around the world is coming from non-animal sources like plant-based meat. Well, 0.0% is coming from clean meat and you know, probably around maybe half a percent in the US is coming from plant-based meat. So it's a very, very tiny fraction. So there's going to be a lot of scale up that's needed here, but how long do you think it would be before New Age Meats would actually be able to, let's just say, offer you know, not fast food restaurants, but even just any restaurants, the ability to sell your products? Well, so we we are going to be raising shortly our Series A, and that is to go to market. So the and and that essentially is in the 
in this cycle, I'll give a an answer. Typically, the the time between investment cycles will be a year and a half to two years. So before the next investment investment cycle, we will be in market. Okay. So how much money have you raised so far? Uh, about seven million dollars. So seven million so far. And what's the Series A that you're going to be raising? Uh, it's still we're still working that out with our potential investors. So not quite mm-hmm. ready to say how much that is yet. Okay, but presumably some multiple over that over the seven million, of course. Yeah, it's it's a it, it depends. I mean, right. it really, it depends on the right investor. That's that in my mind, the right investor, and then how they marry with the milestones. Right. Uh, so certainly, okay. certainly more than what we've raised so far. Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, well, okay. So you're going to be raising millions more. And what are you using it for? And so, you know, one thing I read recently, and tell me if you think this is true. I read recently that if you were to take all of the bioreactors in the world today that are currently used for mammalian cell culture, every mm-hmm. single one of them for biopharmaceutical purposes, everything, biomedical, everything, um, and repurpose them all to be producing cultivated meat, that it would still not comprise, the output of them would still not comprise 1% of the world's volume of meat that is being mm-hmm. produced right now. You think that's true? Uh, I haven't done that calculation, but that's, I would say that that is not the product that we're making. So that, that mm-hmm. falls more in the camp of the mass by mass replacement yeah. that Got I was it. saying earlier okay. is the losing strategy. Got it. Okay. So for the winning strategy, what are you going to do? Are you building your own pilot facility here? And if so, like how, how much do you think that that costs to do? Yeah, so we, we definitely are. So we'll be doing our own manufacturing, um, certainly on the, on the bio side. Uh, it remains to be seen if we'll make the, the entire product together. Just uh, we'll use our funds judiciously. So the, as far as the output, uh, it's a good question on the output. Uh, we're not quite ready to talk about uh, how much output we'll be uh, serving post-Series A, but uh, post-Series A raise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is certainly, that certainly will be shared. Okay, cool. Uh, well, I can't wait. You know, there's a lot of folks who are talking about building pilot plant facilities here um, in the world to mm-hmm. start culturing animal cells, uh, which is really exciting. And I, I actually violated one of my own rules, which is I, I don't like calling them bioreactors just because mm. that's so, um, it, you know, it has a little bit of a scary feel to people. Um, you right. know, calling them something like fermenters or cultivators seems to be a, a consumer friendlier term. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. Some of the other, um, I mean, I chatted with some of the folks in some of the other companies about this very question. Uh, I think that fermenters, I don't think is in, in entirely accurate. Yeah. Uh, so ferment, you know, fermentation is, it's something that we don't do. Uh, so it, it would, it would be, so cultivators could work. I think it's an interesting term. Um, it's because we're, because for instance, we hire people who uh, have experience working in bioreactors. Uh, we can't really say that we're looking for a cultivator engineer because they won't know what we're talking about. Hmm. So in order for us to actually use the existing technology and the people with experience in that, then we have to use the industry jargon, which is, which yeah. is bioreactors. So uh, well, again, the habit saying that. Yeah, it's one thing to use it in a job description, and it's another thing mm-hmm. to use it in a public-facing way, like right. a, like an interview with the with the media. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I doubt that. I, I think that there are some people, like perhaps both of us, who would be happy to eat uh, bioreactor to fork meals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I have a feeling that uh, most people. Um, you know, would like to envision their food coming from somewhere else, um, which, you know, cultivator may work for that. But I, I guess, you know, I can't not 
ask you then also, because, you know, during this interview, um, you know, you've used terms like uh, cultivated meat and cell-based meat. Do you have thoughts on this? You know, there's clean meat, there's cell-based meat, there's cultivated meat and cultured meat. Do you have uh, thoughts on on this topic about what are the most uh, consumer-friendly ways to describe the foods that you're making? Sure, yeah. So we 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 certainly have been keeping up with the discussion, the ongoing discussion. And when we started, we were a clean meat company. That was certainly what the the industry was, how the industry was defining itself. And there have been a number of various reports over time on various things around consumer acceptance, but also differentiability. Uh, essentially, like how differentiating is the term between conventional meat, for instance. Uh, and then you see you see different types of reports that come out targeting. Uh, terrestrial animals versus seafood. Uh, so we've also done our own work. So we have uh, talked to some of our own consumers, uh, some of the some of the go-to-market venues, channels that we're working with, and we've asked them what they prefer. And so the response that comes back is cultivated. So cultivated is the the term that we prefer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we don't, but I mean, we're a very data-driven organization. And if the data comes back showing later that there is a better term, then then again, we're, we're data driven, so we'll follow data. Yeah, I, I like cultivated, and I, I too use it, and um, I think it's good. I, I do, as I've, I've shared, I have some concerns that um, people don't want to eat cells, and so referring to it as cell based, I think referring to it as cell based is a great way to differentiate it. But I'm just concerned that it's in, in a bad way that mm-hmm. you're you're differentiating it by by handicapping yourself because people you know have a hard time. Uh, really wanting to eat cells. Of course, all the food we eat is comprised of cells, um, which is another way that it's actually not differentiated since conventional meat is made from cells also and is also cell-based and plant-based meat is cell-based too. So, um, But I understand the desire for it. And um, I I think that cultivated seems to walk that line. Um, But uh, either way, you know, it's, I agree, like, you know, should let the data actually drive those types of decisions and uh, see what the best ways to uh, describe these foods are to make them the most appealing to consumers because there's already going to be a perception issue that will have to be uh, battled. And, you know, you want to start off on the right foot. You only get one chance to make a first impression, you know? Agreed. Yeah. Things very smart. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, okay, Brian. So you're going to go out, you're going to raise the Series A, you're going to build a pilot plant. And from there, you're hoping that the regulatory piece will fall into play and then you start selling? Or is it the pilot plant just really to demonstrate what you're capable of doing? Or do you want to actually start selling that product to, let's say, restaurants or grocery stores or caterers or whoever else it would be? Oh, yeah, we definitely want to start selling. Uh, It's the doing the production, making your own production facility. The first product that's going to come out of there, though, it doesn't go right to the consumer. So a lot of people may take the idea, you know, I guess being from maybe outside the industry would say that, well, as soon as you finish the production facility and, and run it, then you're ready to go deliver to the, to the consumers. And that's not quite the case yet. So you, much like you kind of need to wear in a new pair of shoes, you kind of need to wear in your production facility and you need to understand how it's, how good it is at consistently making the product that you are going to be delivering to your customers. Cause you don't want to deliver product, which is one day soupy and the next day to, to dry. And so you want to, first off, make product that goes back to your own R&D to determine that it is meeting the quality standards that you want to share with consumers. And so, yeah, that's going to be the first few months after after we start producing product, uh, and then we'll be selling that, yep. 
Okay. Yeah, I don't think soupy is the adjective that most people want when they think of their meat. They, they might want novel experiences, but I don't know that soupy meat is, uh, is, is what they're going for. I may have to go back to that flavor wheel from Fermanage. She, like, there may be a vector in soupy. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. The memory doesn't serve me well tonight. We will have to see. I, I look forward to yeah. hearing a backer report on that. Right. <laughs> okay. So, Brian, you have founded two companies and served as CEO of two companies. Uh, so, you know, for somebody who's a serial entrepreneur like yourself, there probably are lots of resources that you have relied on in your journey throughout your life here. Are there any books or anything else for people who look at what you're doing and are like, hey, that Brian Spears guy, I really like what he's doing. I'd like to be more like him. Are there any books or other types of resources that you would recommend for folks who are interested in trying to start their own business to try to make the world a better place? Sure, yeah. So the a, a lot of places to start here. So I think that the um, books, probably the, the biggest, the, especially for making a, a technology-based frontier, so essentially translation of frontier research into market, that's fundamentally very difficult, right? So it, it's it's certainly non-trivial to say, we're going to be doing, we're going to go into lab, we're going to try and figure out at a very fundamental level what we don't know already, and then we're going to go and move into development on that and then move that to production. So that so that's the pipeline I've been working with my entire career. And that whole pipeline is very hard to do well. And it's very hard to keep a culture inside of the company, which keeps all the pieces together that does that. Because the people that work uh, early stage, the researchers, the research scientists, they think very differently than the engineers who do more of the development and testing, than the production people that go and make this at scale and then make it more efficient and, make us, and to make it a cost-effective enough to be able to deliver to the market. And so being able to maintain a culture which houses kind of big tent all of those people is, is very difficult. So in the beginning, especially, I think it's important to be really aware of what you what you know and what you don't know. And I'm I think that one of the the best books that teach you this is um, like Thinking Fast and Slow is is one of my favorites. Uh, it's by Daniel Kahneman, and it's a it's a fantastic read, which is really a, a pretty a pretty pretty readable though dense. Um, retelling of a, of a lot of uh, psychological research that shows how the human mind is thinks it's really good at certain things, at, at assessing certain characteristics, but is actually very bad at it, uh, repeatedly, measurably bad at, for instance, large numbers uh, and, and being fooled by bias, by injecting bias. Um, so I think it's a fantastic book, not just to read once, but to just to keep going back to. Like I'll pick it up and start and read a chapter, and I'll be like, "Oh my god, how have I forgotten that? I've entirely forgotten uh, this this whole priming thing and, and how priming has affected me." Uh, yeah. So, well, the the human mind is good at deluding itself into thinking that it has a good memory, too. I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm reminded. Uh, Richard Feynman has that great quote. He said, "the The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool." So uh, you you definitely want to be aware of these. You want to be aware of these ideas, ideally to inoculate yourself against them. But again, they're, it's difficult to inoculate yourself. So you kind of have to keep doing that. So yeah. I think that's a really fantastic one. Um, I, I like to share that early on in in my career. I think that the the rise of kind of long form interview podcasts was really instrumental uh, because it wasn't just kind of a retelling of of a entrepreneur or, or some sort of builder moving from success to success. Uh, because if you look back, you can always, you can always draw the, the lines between these certain things that you did to show that you meant to do these things. 
But in reality, when, it's, when you're actually occurring, you don't know. You, have, you really have no idea. You're just trying a lot of things. And then the things that didn't work, you just don't tell the story about. Like people don't hear typically about the things that didn't work. And so the nice thing about some of these longer form podcasts is that, and, and some of the hosts that do a good job with them, is that they bring out the fact that you fail a lot and that you don't know. And uh, I think like, so Guy Raz's stuff, he, he did um, the TED Radio Hour first, and then he did How I Built This. And uh, he, he takes a very concerted approach to understanding not just, again, what the entrepreneur or builder did right, but rather also the things he did wrong. And that was so important to me early on because I, I all of a sudden realized that these people who are frankly changing the world, they're, they're no smarter than I am. And they don't know anything more than I do. And, and they really just figured it out. They just, they started, they made a mistake, they fixed it, they kept going. They made another mistake, they fixed it, they, they kept going. So you don't, it's not, it's not just having a lot of experience or knowing or, or having the right connections. It's really just getting out there and going and doing it. And so I, those types, and your, your podcast is a, is a great example, I think. You know, I, I have often thought whenever I am listening to those kinds of interviews or reading books by other people, like the things that I value the most are not reading about their successes, but about the times they fell down and got back up. Yep. And if you read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which is uh, mm. the, the, by, uh, the autobiography of the founder of Nike, um, you know, he basically spends most of the book talking about all the failures and near-death experiences that the company had and uh, all the ways that they basically screwed up. And um, it's really inspirational to see that and then to see that they still had those types of successes. So uh, I share your, your uh, interest in, in those type of stories for sure, um, which to me are, are far more inspirational than just stories about people's success. Um, mm-hmm. It feels Definitely. like a, a much better story. Um, so finally then, Brian, you know, you have had these two companies and I'm sure you think about other companies that you wish existed that maybe if you weren't doing New Age Meets, maybe you would be doing something else. But are there other ideas for companies that you hope that maybe a listener here who's inspired will start their own company to do something good in the world? Yeah, that's a really good question. And when people ask me, I kind of, I, I, I think that the, the types of things that we need to be working on, they kind of broadly fall into three big buckets. And I'm, I'm working in what I like to call as bucket three. It's the one all the way at the end. It's kind of in, in it's, it's the downstream effects of buckets one and two. And I think that, you know, bucket one, uh, is, is the most important because that is essentially working on humans themselves. It's, it's how we treat ourselves as humans. It's how we treat the other humans. It's how we treat the other species that share the planet with us. It's how we share the planet. It's how we treat the planet itself. And understanding that there that we are connected to all of these, that we are all descended directly from the Earth. And I mean, for for all of the species on the Earth to survive, we really needed the Earth. We also you know, we need the Sun because it pro- provides that energy. And we're not about to destroy the Sun, but we are about to destroy the Earth. And so we are literally children of this this um, star and the the substrate, this planet that we're on. And we really need to understand that, and take care of that. And so that's that's bucket one. And the startups that the startups and businesses that deal with that would be more, I think, understanding that we there is a I think a really caustic trend toward the idea of this concentrated benefit and diffuse harm. The idea that it's really good to accumulate as much as you can because it's a good signifier that you are valuable and that you're worthwhile. Uh, and I think that 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 idea is really dangerous. And what we should instead be working toward is 
making it, it's cliche, but it's understanding that when we when we help others around us to feel more secure, then we become more secure, and we become and when when you help people to move up from the bottom rungs of like Maslow's hierarchy, uh, when when people are very concerned about their uh, where they're going to get their next meal, or if they're going to be able to afford a place to live or, or get healthcare, then they don't care about the planet. They don't care about hurting animals. They don't care about hurting other people because they're so intent on themselves. But when you take care of those people, then they can start to care. Then, then their circle of, of empathy expands beyond themselves and beyond, around their, their immediate family, and their immediate people around them. And so taking care of each other and, and understanding that we're all connected then we'll be able to trickle down into bucket number two, which is, I think, then an incentive structure reform. Like, how do we actually build a society whereby we're not having those concentrated benefits and diffuse harm that we just talked about? And then bucket three would then be all of the things that are actually right now on fire. So I'm, I'm, I really say, like, I'm a firefighter. The, the issue is so bad that we have to go and make meat from cells and from plants that replicates the experience of eating meat because people will not stop eating meat. They will not, they, that we, that we, we're eating so much meat and we're dropping the cost down, expanding, expanding the production of meat so much, even though we know that it's destroying the planet. And we know it's destroying our health. And we certainly know this is destroying animal welfare. And so I'm, I'm out there working to put out that fire, but I, I very much know that another fire is just going to pop up if we don't solve the first two buckets. So we really that, need to change who we are. So what's an example of a company that would be addressing one of those, whether in existence or not in existence, that would be addressing who we are? So I think that it, it's broadly speaking, a lot of mental, mental wellness, the idea of wellness in general, the idea that instead of fixing things that are wrong, but actually encouraging humans to, to flourish and move up that Maslow's hierarchy. Uh, and and that changes it. It changes fundamentally what we want as species, what we're taught to want. And so I think, for instance, the, there's a lot of really good, a lot of good, really good startups working on psychedelics. And I think psychedelics are really interesting because if there's one thing they teach you, they teach you the connectedness of everything, and they teach they they show you where we as species come from, that we come from the planet. Mm-hmm. And once you understand that, and it, it shows your connectedness with the other with the other species that we share this planet with. And so do you, do you think there is um, like a causal relationship between, or let's say a causal association between psychedelic users and meat consumption then? Like does one lead to the other? Do you think that like people who use psychedelics are more likely to eat less or no meat? It's a really good question. I, I would be loath to give you just the anecdotal evidence that I've observed. Uh, I mean, I didn't, <laughs> so, uh, I, there's a difference also in psychedelic uh, recreational use versus more therapeutic aspect. So if you've done it recreationally, then then it may not have the effect that I'm referring to. So there, there's a lot of so so for instance, MAPS, the multidis, multidisciplinary association of psychedelic sciences, does extraordinarily good peer-reviewed research at some of the some of the most prestigious universities. That are able to show that that people, when they're when they take some of these uh, when they use some of these psychedelic assisted therapeutics, that they're consistently reporting them to be some of the most meaningful experiences of their lives. And this is these are people that uh, across a variety of and not, and some of, some of them are the they're well people, but then some of them are dealing with end of life, uh, some terminal diseases. Some of them are dealing with addiction, um, and so 
there is a really good body of evidence that shows that an encounter with the, the, the finite nature of life and understanding that we all we have is the time on earth with each other on this planet. And that, that time is actually really important. And, and the most important thing is to treat ourselves and other, each other's really well. And it fundamentally changes your perspective and you start to care less about accumulating accumulating um, either wealth or assets to shield you away from the fear you have that someday you are going to pass into oblivion. Mm-hmm. So, and so you want to, you want to, you're, you're high, you're, you're trying to take control in the way that you can take control of something you actually, that you feel you can take control of, of something you actually can't can take control of. Like you, you, you can't control the fact that you're going to die and you can't control the fact that you, that you actually don't have control over this, this really complicated experience that we have the, on, on, on this planet. And you can only control so many things in your life. You can't even control the things that the, the thoughts that come into your head. And so when you sit with the idea that instead of trying to control everything, that you can just be in, in the moment, you can be with all the other people and beings on this planet and really enjoy the time that you have together, then your, your thought pattern fundamentally shifts. And then this, the incentive structure that we have as a society that governs our interactions with each other can shift as well. And then these downstream problems that I'm working on won't happen. <laughs> I, won't, I won't need to do these things. Because we'll fundamentally change who we are to make a better, kinder, more sustainable society. And society, frankly, that's a humanity that is worthy of its ambitions to be, for instance, an interplanetary species. (laughs) Yeah, well... Uh, I question whether we are worthy of that now, but I certainly, <laughs> I certainly hope that we can change. It's it's tough, uh, you know. It's it's one thing to change human behavior; it's another thing to change human nature, and uh, it's, it's it's hard to do. But uh, I certainly am very grateful that you are firefighting, Brian, and that you are uh, working on that third bucket because I have a hard time seeing humanity uh, giving up its desire to eat meat anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And so I'm grateful that you are working so hard to provide a much much better way for humans to enjoy the culinary delights that we seek so uh, so often, uh, without so much of the suffering that is entailed in this production. So, I will be cheering on for your success. I look forward to going to your uh, to your pilot plant when it's built. Look forward to trying the Absolutely. the new age meats turducken, and it'll <laughs> it'll be a lot of fun. We will even if you know how to follow, we can uh, even swing dance uh, at, at the plant, and we'll show you. Uh, <laughs> I do know how to follow. Yes. All right. Great. All right. I'll. Really they teach you that in the minor, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. I'll really be looking forward to that, and we'll make sure not to knock into any of the cultivators that are uh, that are <laughs> that are in the plant at that time. Just the bioreactors, yes. <laughs> we'll get rid of the bioreactors. You're not going to be using those. <laughs> all right, Brian. Okay. Well, thanks so much for everything you're doing. It's really great to talk with you, and I'm wishing you all the best. Thank you, Paul, and same to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.